Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Midweek Podcast. As always, I'm Pastor Greg, and joining me is Pastor Chris, and we are here to answer the Bible reading questions that you have sent us this week during the coronavirus outbreak. We had several good questions this week, but before we started, Pastor Chris, I saw that there was some good news, well, potentially some good news coming out uh, yesterday. It seems that some of our governors in the nation think that maybe the worst is behind us. They're cautious in their optimism, but I don't know about you, but that's the first sign of optimism I've seen for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, um, I'm sure, as a governor, because really the ideal situation you want to be in is where people feel like, hey, that wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. But the the good situation, the ideal situation as a governor is basically to get blamed that way. The bad situation is you didn't do enough and people are dying everywhere. So there's kind of a, it's kind of a lose-lose for governors. And so to see them starting to be optimistic that way, I think especially is, is helpful for me. I think the other thing too, they, you know, we always have to be so guarded in our optimism because we're kind of dependent on whatever information the media gives us. And then the media is kind of dependent on whatever information the governing authorities give them. And so we're all kind of just searching for the right information and how to interpret it. Nevertheless, uh, those who you would presume are more in the know than I am anyway are cautiously optimistic. And hey, that makes me optimistic. So maybe we're starting to see an exit strategy come through here. Well, we'll keep praying that way. And hopefully before we know it, we'll be meeting again as a body. But until then, keep sending us your questions Uh, Keep reading your Bibles, first of all, and then send us any questions you might have about your Bible reading, and we'll answer as many as we can. I'm going to start with a question that was sent to us from Steve Ransom about Proverbs 15. He says that in Proverbs 15, in verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. But in verse 29, it says that the Lord is far from the wicked. And the question is, is that a contradiction? In one verse, it says that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, but then in another verse it says that he is far away. I think there is a sort of a broader question here, and it's how we interpret the Bible. Do we always interpret the Bible literally? And the answer to that question is no, because the Bible uses um, irony. The Bible uses parts of speech that aren't meant to be taken literally, but are euphemisms or colloquialisms. And that's sort of what's going on here. To say that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, well, that's to be taken literally. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But to say that the Lord is far from the wicked is a colloquialism that we're to take in the more normal sense of how it was intended to be used. And we do this in English all the time. Let me give a couple of examples. Let's say I um, go to buy something off of a seller from KSL, and I go and I look at the item, and we're negotiating over it, and I'm standing right next to him, but I say, you know, I think we're pretty far apart here. And what I mean is we disagree on the price, but we're standing right next to each other. So we're not physically far apart. We just disagree. Or... Like I heard a husband tell me one time that he feels alone even though he's living in the same house as his wife. He says, I feel like we're so far apart even though they're living in close proximity. Well, what does he mean? He means that their purposes, their 
their relationship, their connectivity is far apart, even though place-wise they're close together. And so I think that's sort of the idea Proverbs 15 verses 3 and 29 is getting at. The Lord sees all, the Lord knows all, the Lord is right there before all. But to say the Lord is far from the wicked means that his purposes do not align with the wicked. He is not pursuing their good. In fact, he is frustrating their purposes, and he is accomplishing only his. So spiritually, purposefully, etc., they are a far ways apart, even though God is right there watching the whole time. Does that make sense, Pastor Chris? It does, and you may be asking, okay, well, how do I know when one is supposed to take something as a figure of speech? There's actually clues in the text itself, and so like if you look at verse 29, this opening phrase, the Lord is far from the wicked, is contrasted with another phrase, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And so he's clearly setting these two against each other. And so if you say, well, on the one hand, he's hearing the prayer of the righteous, what must it mean for him to be far? It must mean he's not listening to them. There's not this relationship before, you know, between the two of them. And so there's this contrast to how close in relationship God is with these two different groups of people. We interpret the Bible normally. What I mean by that is we interpret like we do any kind of speech. You know, if somebody says it's raining cats and dogs, we don't suddenly cover our heads and run inside because we're afraid of cats and dogs coming down. We, we realize that's a figure of speech. There are times even in normal everyday speech where we're like, oh, I didn't realize that was actually he was kidding or he was being sarcastic or that was a turn of phrase. I didn't catch the the uh, allusion he was making. And there are times when you read the Bible, you come back later and realize, oh, you know what? I, I didn't quite understand that that's what he was alluding to or or that there was that contrasting phrase that would have helped me interpret the thing I was struggling with. So um, think about it more like normal speech. God communicates in normal speech very well, and that includes a whole host of um, normal use cases, uh, like analogies and idioms and metaphors and, and the like. And it also includes straightforward, normal, historical recounting of things. And so the careful reader is always asking those kinds of questions, and a lot of times the text itself will give you indications of how you're supposed to interpret a certain phrase or, or text. Yeah, that's right. Context always gives it away. So, for example, when Jesus says, you Pharisees strain gnats and swallow camels, he doesn't mean that you literally swallow camels or that they literally swallowed camels. He's talking about how he he goes on to say, you know, you tithe mint and cumin, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law, like justice. And so on these ones where you're confused, give a careful look to the context, and that will probably lead you in the right direction. Our next question comes from Numbers 32, and uh, it basically looks at the the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, and asks, basically, how did they have enough time to build cities before crossing the Jordan and helping Israel fight off the rest of the Canaanites? Um, there's this question that's asked of Moses in that chapter where they, they want to basically settle on um, that side of the Jordan and not cross over. And Moses essentially says, no, you, you're going to come and fight with us. Um, but in the meantime, they build up these cities before they go in. And I think some of this is just uh, taking ourselves back, you know, 3,300 years or so, a little bit more than that, and trying to equate our cities with their cities. You have to remember a few things. One is they've been conquering cities this whole time, and so there are cities to be taken, and 
the other reality is these people are are nomads and they have been for you know some 40 years at this point so we think of city and we think of you know you got your post office and your grocery store and you know you got to get all this brick and mortar stuff up they're essentially thinking we need somewhere safe with some walls that we can inhabit and so you could see how you know you put i bet you put them in our church on a project like that for you know uh 2 or 3 months and you've got a pretty nice set of fences and you've got some, you know, some basic protection set up, especially if there was something existing there already and uh, enough for their families. And, uh, you know, you put three whole tribes on that and you can imagine the speed at which uh, they would get up some basic provisions like a wall and they'd be able to pitch their tents inside of it and um, occupy it. And uh, so as far as how long it happened, we don't know. Or we're not told, but uh, we shouldn't be thinking here like, New York City that they're set, setting up. We should be thinking more like this uh, walled area where they could pitch their tents and start to, over time, develop some more permanent dwellings. Yeah, there's kind of a delay of time there. You know, God had punished Israel for their disobedience, and they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and there's a stretch of time, you know, like Pastor Chris said, we don't know how long, but that Israel was sort of learning to fight. They were sort of flexing their muscles. And was it five years? Was it just a year or two? We don't know. But that's where these cities come into play during that little interval of time. And uh, so thank you for that answer, Pastor Chris. And that brings us to our next question in John four forty four, um, Jesus has just come from Samaria, and he's about to enter into Galilee. And John transitions those two statements by saying that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, and then he went into Galilee where they welcomed him. And the question is, how do those two statements connect? A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, and what that's saying is a prophet has honor everywhere except his hometown, but then the Galileans welcome him. So since Galilee was the sort of the home region of Jesus, is that a contradiction? Well, I think what we need to do is just look at the immediate and broader context, and then that will help us understand this seeming contradiction. And this isn't a small one. I picked up a commentator just to check myself against it, and he said that there were at least 10 different options that have been proposed through the years. So it's not a totally easy one, but I think the context does give us some clues. So the Galileans welcomed him, but their welcome wasn't exactly what you might think it would be. When Jesus was in Samaria, he won the entire village to faith in himself without doing a single miracle. But when he came to Galilee, in verse 45, it says that they all welcomed him because they were curious about a miracle he had performed there. A nobleman comes to Jesus and says, will you heal my son? And in verse 48, Jesus rebukes him because he says, unlike the Samaritans, that's my addition, he doesn't say that, but by putting these two things together, it is a contrast. So unlike the Samaritans, you won't believe unless you see a miracle. Chapter 5 takes a bit of an interlude. Jesus is down in Jerusalem, and then he returns to Galilee in chapter 6, where he feeds the 5,000. 
they attempt to force him to become king. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. The only reason you want me to rule over you is because of the bread that filled your bellies. And then he begins preaching to them. And as he preaches, more and more and more people walk away until in John 6, 66, it says, many, many of those Galilean disciples left and never came back. And Jesus even looks at the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And they say, where else can we go? You are the one with the words of eternal life. So what we see is that the Galileans had sort of a shallow welcome. They were curious about the miracles. They wanted the blessings of Jesus, but they did not want to honor him as the Messiah that Jesus really is. The Samaritans honored him as Messiah without seeing any miracles. The Galileans welcomed him temporarily so long as he was willing to perform to their satisfaction. And as soon as he refused to do that, they rejected him. So when it says that the Galileans welcomed him, we can take that one of two ways. Either John is distinguishing between welcoming and honoring, as in the Samaritans truly honored him, the Galileans only welcomed him, or John is using a sense of irony here. It would be like putting your finger quotes up. They certainly welcomed him in the sense that they only really wanted to see his miracles, and as soon as he stopped performing, they rejected him. I prefer the first one. This is probably one of my more personal interpretive characteristics. I tend to kind of avoid irony. I think the apostles knew that they were writing for broader audiences, and irony tends to get lost when you can't see facial expressions or hand motions or like if you're reading it a century later or in our case 20 centuries later it's kind of hard to pick up on those ironic elements so i think what john is doing there is distinguishing between a wholehearted acceptance and honoring of jesus as messiah and the galileans surface level welcoming as jesus as their Messiah. So no, Jesus did not get the honor in his hometown that the Samaritans had given him in the previous section. You can think almost like Jesus walking into the Hosannas right before his crucifixion and then hearing within a few short days, crucify him. Whatever that was when he walked into the Hosannas, it wasn't truly honoring. It was uh, a kind of welcome if you're the Messiah we want. And that essentially is how the Galileans treat him as well. There's this conditional element of this conditional aspect of their of their welcome. All right, well, since we're in John 4, I think let's just stick there. We've got another question here. And I should say uh, we asked several of you to send in questions, and we got some questions from some new people today, so that was encouraging. This question is about the Samaritans. And in John 4.11, the Samaritans call Jacob their father— And the question is, wouldn't they, Samaritans and Jews, both be a part of Israel, God's chosen people from the Old Testament? Why do the Gospels usually refer to the Jews rather than the Israelites? Now, I had to exercise some great restraint not to go into tons of detail here, but when you look back and you realize, okay, there's these Samaritans, there's these Jews, they're both claiming Jacob as their father, you know, what's the deal here, all right? Well, when you go back, what you find is that 
After Solomon, the kingdom splits, you might remember, into the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And pretty much right away from the start, that northern nation, Israel, starts just completely dis- rebelling against God, setting up their own false gods, setting up their own ways they like to worship God, and just kind of distancing themselves from God. So so much so that very quickly they start getting all these prophetic utterances against them. And in fact, you might remember this famous account with Ahaz, the southern king in Judah, in Isaiah chapter 7, where he's fearing because Israel, the northern land, has teamed up with Syria to come up and to try to destroy him in Jerusalem. And he's afraid of that, and so afraid he is that he actually goes behind God's back, as it were, and asks the Assyrians, this massive empire up to the northeast, to come and basically deliver him from Israel and Syria. God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells Ahaz, the king of Judah, look, I'm going to take care of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 8, he says, within 65 years, Ephraim, which, to add a little more confusion to the stack, is another name for Israel, Ephraim, will be shattered from being a people. About 65 years later, this king of Assyria, this king, his name is Esharhaddon, and we're told in 2 Kings chapter 17 that he actually intermarries the people and takes possession of all their cities in Samaria and starts basically interbreeding them to distinguish them from being a people. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, this is now a couple hundred years later, these people are saying, look, distantly in the past, we were related to these Israelites. Now we've been intermixed. Let us go back and basically join in with the people of Judah going back to build up the temple. So to kind of summarize that, if that's a little bit too much detail without seeing things, Essentially, when they split, God had, God had declared punishment, on, especially on that northern nation, for how rebellious they had been, and prophesied through Isaiah that they won't even be a people in 65 years. And within 65 years, Esharhaddon, um, this king of Assyria, starts to intermarry his people with the people of Israel, so much so that there's, it's hard to distinguish who was from what tribe and where they came from and you know who had the lineage that really traced back to the Israelites. That group that eventually comes back and settles in that northern region above Jerusalem is called the Samaritans. And so basically from that point on forward, we're talking, you know, late 600s or so before Christ forward, the Samaritans were thought of as a separate people group because they were essentially intermarried with all these Babylonians and Assyrians. They were mixed race. And so when the Jews thought of the Samaritans, they, they remembered the rebellion of that northern land. But uh, that's essentially the distinction between the peoples. Nobody would typically go through the land of Samaria. It was a mountainous region, but it was the quickest way from like where Jesus lived to Jerusalem. But instead of going through their area, everybody would go down to the Jordan Valley and then basically walk along the Jordan River uh, until they reached Jericho, and then they'd head straight up the hill to Jerusalem. They would just circumnavigate that whole area because of how much they disliked the Samaritans and, and really vice versa. So hopefully that helps kind of provide some distinguishing factors for you as you think about Samaritans versus Jews in the first century. That passage in John 4, when Jesus goes to Samaria and ministers to the first to the woman at the well, and then he stays for a couple of days for the whole town, it's really kind of a foretaste of what we see in the book of Acts, of God making these very racially motivated Jewish people jealous. He gives the Jewish people 
the Messiah. He gives them this message first. They continually reject him. They reject the message. And then the gospel goes next to the Samaritans, and then from there even to the Gentiles and beyond. And the book of Acts is sort of retelling the same story over and over again of how the Jewish people see this message going forth to races not their own, and they get so jealous and it incites them uh, to violence. And it really goes to show how deeply motivated these first century Jewish people were as to their race. Well, I'm sure Pastor Chris and I could go on and on discussing that question in a little bit more detail, but we do have a couple more questions, and one in particular that could also uh, be taken uh, quite uh, to, to, to quite a long length of time. In fact, Pastor Chris and I could probably spend a couple of dedicated podcasts just to this one question. And it comes from Numbers 31, but could probably also be asked from a few other passages of scriptures, a few other passages of scripture, namely from Joshua. And it's this question, why does God command his people to obliterate certain cities and to wipe out these cities, both men, women, children, animals, everything gets wiped out? Is God just in commanding the Israelites to kill ostensibly women and children. Um, Like I said, this could have been asked of other passages, but it came to us through Numbers 31, and I'll answer it from Numbers 31 in just a moment, but I'd like to break this question down into six parts, and I'll try to click through these as quickly as we can. The first part is whenever we come to a question like this, we always have to remember the broader statements about God, namely that God is good, God is just, God always acts in accordance with his own character, his own glory, his own purposes, and for his own people's good. And so in Numbers 31, when God commands his people to wipe out Midian, he's doing so within the counsels of his own justice and in his own good purposes. Number two, God has the right to judge. I think that's probably the broadest question associated with this, is does God have the right to judge anybody? Well, of course he does. He's the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. And as creator and as judge, he does have the right to judge. And as such, number three, God has the right to give life, and God has the right to take life. Job one twenty one says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, the Lord takes away 50,000 human beings every day. Nobody dies apart from God's will. God has all of our days numbered. God knows exactly how long we'll live. God all the time gives life, and God all of the time takes life. That is within his sovereign choice. It's important to remember here that we are souls that will live forever. We're not bodies. And so by taking our earthly life from us, by taking our body from us, God is not taking away our existence. Um, He's simply transitioning us to our eternal state. The fourth point about this question is we cannot, when we come to a question like this, We can never ignore God's mercy. 
And I'm just going to throw out several Bible passages that illustrate God's mercy. In Genesis 15:16, God tells Abram that he's not sending him and his people into the promised land yet because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. In other words, God was giving them 400 years of mercy before he began to mete out their judgment. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, Israel was to obey certain rules of engagement when they invaded the land or when they took a city. Before they took the city and put it to the sword, they were supposed to send a peace delegation. If the city being attacked desired peace, they would be sent away, they might be brought into sort of an indentured servitude, but their lives would be spared. This peace, I have no doubt, was offered to Midian, and they rejected it. These were sort of God's standard operating procedures when it came to doing battle with other nations. This offer of peace is also extended to individuals. In Joshua 2, Rahab the harlot who hides the spies says, you know, show your mercy on me. And they do. They show their mercy on her. And she is rewarded for her coming and falling at the feet of Jesus. And then specifically to the Midianites, there's an element of God's mercy here that is really profound. It was the Midianites, along with the Moabites, who hired Balaam to come and curse Israel. And so here they have this acknowledged spiritual leader in the person of Balaam, and Balaam only blesses them. Balaam warns them not to approach the Israelites. Balaam warns them not to try to attack God's covenant people, that God only is going to do good to these people. The Midianites heard this message from one of their respected religious leaders, and they heard it directly from God himself through that man. Yet in Numbers 25, they ignored that message altogether, and they adopted a national policy. They used their women to seduce Israelite men to join with them in these sexually tinged religious practices. And it was for that temptation to sin and for the Israelites buying into that sin that God first judged his own people for engaging with the Midianites in this sin. So we shouldn't ignore God's mercy specifically to the Midianites in this case and also generally to them. The fifth part of this answer is that we should not ignore Midian's sinfulness. We've recovered, I say we, I mean archaeologists, of whom I am not in their number, but I can see the research that they've done. The Midianites and the people surrounding them were people of great, great evil. Their practices were so wretched and so abhorrent, they practiced child sacrifice, sexuality and bestiality, just influenced their entire culture. And we know from history that great evil is never eradicated without great cost. And so God basically was patient with this great evil. God warned them in their evil. God gave them opportunity to repent of their great evil. And when they persisted in their evil and tried to pull Israel into their evil with them through tempting them with their women, then God's mercy came to an end, and he poured out his judgment on that people group. We ought not get the impression 
that Midian was innocent and minding their own business, and Israel sprang upon them. They were warned, and they were terribly wretched. Now, what would have happened if Midian had repented? Well, that's why God gives us the book of Jonah. Here, this town Nineveh is just as evil as the Midianites. God sends a reluctant prophet, as it were, in the person of Jonah. He preaches, and they repent, and God relents of the evil he was going to do to that city. And so if Midian had repented, God would have relented his hand. Now, that brings us to the sixth part of our question. How should we respond to this sort of judgment? You know, it's not the first time God judges a people group. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. All the way back in Genesis 7, he sent the floods that judged the entire earth and wiped out the entire earth except for eight people. God is going to judge this earth again. God's threats are not toothless. Um, He means what he says. And here he is offering to all the world a chance to escape the wrath that's to come. We ought to have run from God's wrath. Um, Romans chapter two, Second Peter, Romans chapter two, verse five, Second Peter two nine, uh, Zephaniah one fourteen, I believe it is. They all tell us that a day of wrath is coming, and we must run from that and find shelter in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a preacher say one time, nobody ever perishes when they bow at the feet of Jesus, and that's the truth. When we hear these predictions of God's wrath, we need to look back and see that God is willing to do what he says he will do. And we need to take God at his word and run to him for his mercy and his grace. So I hope that answers the question. It's a tough question. But God, in his good purposes, deemed that it was necessary to perform this act of judgment on the Midianites and in future cities in Canaan. He did it for his glory, he did it for Israel's good, and he did it for the world's greater good. And he he did so by not being unjust in even the slightest little bit. His judgments are good and right and just. And all of the purposes that God had in that are locked inside of his eternal counsels. And it's on us to read with humility and to run to him um, begging for his grace and mercy. Pastor Chris, do you have anything to add to that very challenging question? When people come to you and they have questions like this, it's important for you to recognize the person who's asking it. My guess is if somebody's asking this and is raising this as their major objection to God, that there's something far more personal going on. To say, you know what, something happened 4,000 years ago and I don't quite understand all the nuances of it, therefore I threw everything out, doesn't typically happen. Usually it's simply a symptom of what they feel God, they've already seen of God today. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't go and give some of these answers to a friend or a family member who might ask you, but I am saying that it may be that that's not the real question they have. Usually what I've found helpful is to kind of take a, give a brief answer to the question and then to say, well, you know, what we really need to do is forecast forward to where we see God's mercy and justice um, meet. Uh, in the kind of the most concentrated form. 
when we ask these kinds of questions, one of the things I think is helpful is to, is to think about Jesus and to draw people's attention to him. He was the only one who was innocent, and yet he took not just physical punishment, he took the eternal weight of the wrath of God. He drank down to the very dregs of the, the cup of God's wrath, and he did that for us. And so what these kinds of questions really should point us to is the cross. They should point us to Christ and should draw our attention and the attention of those who might ask the questions to God's love in Christ. And of course, there may be some other questions that are raised by that, but by centering the question on Christ himself, it actually provides both the answer to their question and the answer to their souls. And so I would just encourage you as you interface with these kinds of questions to turn them to the cross, because that's where you'll find the answers that you really need. In our Bible reading today, we actually came on a verse that, you know, we've, we've thrown a lot of information at you. So maybe there's a verse here that would really kind of summarize all this for you. Jesus says that the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. And when it comes to questions like the one posed, really what what the person asking is saying, I don't believe God has a right to judge. I don't believe God has a right to determine that my deeds are evil. And Jesus says, when I do that or when my father does that, humanity raises its fist in anger and says, how dare you, God, judge me for the evil that I've done. And so if whenever I get these sorts of questions, I tend to start to probe what it really is that this person is running from, what it really is that they're attempting to defend, because Jesus sheds light on why mankind tends to ask these sort of questions with a raised fist. Well, I think we've spent long enough on that question. That brings us to our final question of the day, which I'm going to let Pastor Chris tackle. The question comes from John 3, verse 5, and it's simply this. Why does Jesus say we have to be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God? And that's exactly what Nicodemus asks as well. And so we're in good company here. Jesus says to him in verse 3, you have to be born again or you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, confused, says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So clearly... He's trying to figure out what we were talking about earlier. Is this figurative language? Are you literally saying I have to enter my mother's womb again? You know, Jesus, what are you saying? And so Jesus explains it like this in verse 5. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that doesn't immediately clean it up. And so he goes on to explain what he means by that. And so he's got these two categories, water and Spirit. And so to get a little bit more concrete, he says it like this in the very next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So he's equating that with water. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he goes on to describe how the spirit of God works to bring people to salvation. The contrast is simply this. He's saying you've got to be born a second time. You, you were born first once physically. That's when he says, if you're born of the flesh, then you're flesh. And he's equating that with that word water. And so he's describing the birth process. And he's saying you've got to be born physically. That's a given. But you also have to be born spiritually. Now, this is important for a man like Nicodemus, who from basically his birth has considered himself one of the people of God, part of the kingdom of God. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. You know, he is 
an elite at that. And so here's a man who's only ever considered the first birth, his physical birth, as being important. He was born in the right time, in the right place, in the right family to say, I'm part of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus has just done is essentially shatter that view and said, no, no, no. It's not enough just to be born physically in the position you think you need to be, Nicodemus. You have to be born by God's spirit. It's that kind of spiritual birth, that new birth that actually enters you into the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying is that you have to be born spiritually as well. You have to be born physically, that's what the water means, and you have to be born spiritually, that's what spirit means. Well, everybody, that wraps up our questions for the day. Thank you so much for submitting them. And let me take one final opportunity to thank everybody who submitted their salvation testimonies for Easter. That video was great, and uh, I think it really added to our worship of Christ on Easter. So thank you to everybody who participated. Uh, Don't forget to send us your questions this week. Look forward to seeing you uh, for our live stream on Sunday and for our Zoom call on Sunday night. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our midweek podcast. As always, Pastor Chris is here with me, and this is... Let me try that again. (laughs) Three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our midweek podcast where we answer answer your Bible reading questions from the week. You can just start that again if you want. (laughs) (laughs) In three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the midweek podcast. My name is Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Try that last one last time. Take four. Take four.